Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Today we're discussing The Eternal Daughter, the new film from the British director Joanna Hogg. Hogg's carved a remarkable career capturing the hopes, fears and emotional lives of characters within but just on the edge of families of well-to-do Brits who would rather that matters personal be allowed to roll into the long grass just off their croquet lawns. Hogg's last two films, The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2, were specifically autobiographical, looking at Julie, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, an aspiring but uncertain young filmmaker in London's 1980s, with a doomed lover and a caring but distant family, personified by her mother Rosalind, played by Tilda Swinton. Swinton is Honor's real-life mother and an old school friend of Hogg's. The Eternal Daughter, billed as the third in the Souvenir trilogy, is quite different. It's almost entirely a one-woman show, starring Tilda Swinton as mother and daughter, both the older Julie and the ageing Rosalind, whose upcoming birthday sees the pair booked into a grand but chilly country house hotel for a birthday holiday. The hotel and the whole film swirl in a gothic fog. Things go bump in the night, faces are purported to appear at windows and, surely worst of all, there's really bad mobile phone reception. Everything gets odder, more revelatory, more pressing. But, as we'll hear, they start odd too. In the following clip, Julie and Rosalind arrive at the hotel and when Julie tries to check in, she's greeted by a rather surly concierge. Round floor. No, with wheelchair uh, well, access. Well, no. Uh, in fact, when I rang last week, it was to confirm that what, we, what we've preserved is the um, first floor uh, facing the formal uh, gardens. No, there's nothing here on my side. Usually when people book and they have a special request, it's attached uh-huh. to the booking. Yes. Well, I, I imagine he would have made a, a note of it. Can you check with your colleague, maybe? Uh, he's not here this evening. Or, or maybe even your manager? Uh, it's just me for tonight. Uh, but we're here tonight and, and, and yeah, I get that. It. So would you be happy to stay on the ground floor just for tonight? No, I'm afraid not because I reserved a first floor room. Uh, well, I can't put you in a room that I haven't got. A lot of keys there. I mean, have one room that I can give you just for tonight. Oh, that is on the first floor. Oh, oh, that's very good. Um, well, maybe could I could I see that room? Yeah, um, you want to see the room? Yes, just check I'll it take out. You up. Do. And there's Wi-Fi uh, throughout the hotel, is that? Uh, no, not throughout the hotel. If you want some signal, best off going to the top of the building. I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Did you say that there was Wi-Fi? So is The Eternal Daughter a simple ghost story or is it underneath its gothic trappings another typical Joanna Hogg masterclass in the slow reveal of vital truths? Well, I'm joined to discuss the film by the lead critic at the iPaper and contributing editor at Empire magazine, Christina Newland, and by the chief film critic for The Independent, Clarissa Lochry. Welcome both to the programme. Nice Thank to have you, you here. Hello. Hi. That was quite a long intro. Excuse me, both of you, and the listening several for that. But there is quite a lot to unpack. We want to unpack who Joanna Hogg is and where we are in this sort of third souvenir film, I suppose. Clarice, I've mentioned in the intro that we start, we rock up to a country house, a spooky country house wreathed in mist. 
How quickly do we get into this into this gothic world that the film inhabits? Within the first 10 seconds, as you said, <laughs> the mist and they're in a, a cab and the cab driver is talking about seeing this apparition at the window, which is such a classic yeah. <laughs> gothic So trope. far, so women in black, right? Yeah. It, it's almost camp how gothic it is. It's It's sort of overboard in a really enjoyable and self-knowing way. When she gets to the hotel, you always see the green emergency lights on. Mm. And so everything is bathed in green. And sometimes there's a little bit of red from some other emergency light, I guess. (laughs) And it feels almost like a Dario Argento film. It's constant wind, constant shuffling. There's always people uh, singing children's rhymes. Like It's a bit outrageous if you think about it but I think that's almost central to to what the film is is that she sort of pushes it to an extreme to expose I'm kind of going to answer your question that you asked at the beginning (laughs) to say that for me I think there's no such thing as a simple gothic ghost story. I would I say in, in, in the script it had quote marks around yeah, it. There is such a lot to, to, to do with that word. I it? think it's it's yeah. both sides. It's, it is an absolute gothic ghost story top to bottom, but it is complex because of that. I want to come back to the tenets of simplicity or otherwise of the gothic ghost story and what that means because it feels like there is a lot of there's a lot of femininity in this film as well it is necessarily a film made by a woman starring her friend a woman and it unpacks a lot of things i'd like to come back to that because christina i wanted to talk about if we're looking at this as a sort of gothic gothic ghost story if this film is that those sorts of films have a certain rhythm. There's a lot of repetition in this film, having to go, having to check out the things that go bump in the night, having to walk the dog, these sort of meals that set in with her and her mother, which is sort of particularly unusual. What about the rhythm of this film? How does it how does it how does it unfold itself? It feels almost Hitchcockian in mm. a way. Although the plot is far more kind of I guess strange and dreamlike even than you you would typically attribute to Hitchcock. There's something about like the clean classicism of it almost. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of little small cutaways to glancing looks and these kind of, you know, like Rosalind shaking hands when she reaches into a pillbox to take a pill. And so you're looking at the details in a way that you're sort of you're sort of forced, as you say, through repetition, to notice these small things. And I think it's worth saying as well that the film is a, a pandemic film. So you're looking at something which is really, as Clarice has said, reveling mm. in the gothic atmosphere, is reveling in its location, and as a part of that is really kind of drawing from those things to create a feel. It does. It has that. It has the lighting and the atmosphere of vertigo somehow, doesn't it? Some of the sumptuousness of some of the costumes, Tilda Swinton, as both Julie and Rosalind has got some great outfits. The wallpaper kind of seems to be speaking to me as well. <laughs> and, the, and the mistiness of, of kind of like, what's the fog in San Francisco called? Bruce. There's something about that to it as well, which kind of seems to come from vertigo. I know, I, I know we're going to talk about this later with your choice, I'm sure, Clarice. But what about the, the Country House Hotel, the, the, the building itself as sort of witness to what unfolds between mother and daughter and some of the more metaphysical things that happen? What I, I noticed that was a very uh, struck me um, about halfway through the film is that I think every time Julie looks out of the window and she notices something, it's always very modern so at one point she's looking outside and there's this horrible, ugly wedding marquee in the back <laughs> that they put up. And she's very frustrated because she requested a different view. So it's this imposition. 
and at another time she's looking at the the car that's blasting techno music that's picking up the the concierge lady mm. and there is this sense because in so many gothic ghost stories i mean turn of the screw is such a good example there's the idea of the window and the wall and the division between these outer and inner worlds and between kind of reality and memory. Mm. And so for me, this house, the second they enter the hotel or this former home, it's like a, a completely psychic space. It becomes just the the memory palace and they're trying <laughs> to like walk around these corridors and, and find the answers. And you get these yeah, these intrusions of reality and it's quite annoying. It's like, oh, no, <laughs> let us be at peace in the past. And I think all of that is just extremely gothic because, I mean, a lot of the Edith Wharton, M.R. James, Henry James, always were exploring the idea of, of houses and spaces as these, like, containers of very powerful energies. Yeah, it, it's it's got all of that. There, you're absolutely right. That's something I didn't really pick up on that. That horrid, like... The Ford Fiesta that comes to pick up the the receptionist, and it's like, yeah, you're right. Suddenly, you're taken out of this hermetically sealed, spooky world of of this house. So the and I understand the dialogue in the film was improvised by Tilda Swinton, and that Jonah Hogg's normal way of working is to kind of write a kind of short storyish kind of scene plan or film plan, and then have her actors kind of do whatever they want to do with that. And there is something, maybe Christina of. There's something stilted about a lot of that, and that comes from the re- relationship between mother and daughter, their impeccable politeness when all around them they're in the worst hotel with the most boring menu and the surliest receptionist. <laughs> but they're so scrupulously polite that they kind of can't possibly complain. So what what about the dialogue and, how, and maybe a bit a bit about how you can see Joanna Hogg's working practices sort of borne out in the dialogue, maybe? I think it's quite amazing that Tilda Swinton is able to pull off this kind of dual performance in general, but even more so knowing Hogg's working methods, Mm. where you kind of let this dialogue bubble up, you know, somewhat organically from Swinton. And the stilted nature of it, I wouldn't say it's a flaw because it feels like a very Mm. intentional design thing, but also is is in part because you are, you know, she's talking to the air, essentially. Mm. And then there's a a makeup and costume change and she's kind of inhabiting this other role. But it adds to the sense of um, incredible Britishness about these characters, wherein none of them can seem to make a decision without, you know, deferring to the other. They're alone in this space, and yet they still still seem to be incredibly mindful of each other's, you know, personal boundaries in this way that feels, um, you know, there's, there's affection, but there's also a real chilliness to it. And we should say that Julie wants to, is the filmmaker of the other two, souvenir films this is her as a sort of more of a 40 something possibly julie i guess and she is research she wants she's trying to write a film script she's trying to write a screenplay and she's trying to make this film about her mother and she's secretly recording at times during dinner or when they're talking in bed she puts on her voice notes on her phone doesn't she and so she wants to know about her mother, but her mother reveals some secrets about her some sad secrets about her own life as a mother as a woman and and yet Julie pushes her away. So that is that part of this strange British world that Hogg is such an expert at detailing? Or what is that? It's about the, t- the unknowability almost of, of people within families, I wonder. I wonder what you make of that. Christian. Sure, I think we're all kind of interested, right, in our parents' lives before they had us. And, mm. and, and there is a sense that no matter how close we get with the facts, we can never really plant our feet in the ground in that memory. 
Mm-hmm. And this film's almost an attempt to do that in a way, is to kind of um, time travel yeah. in, that, in that sense. And there's a real kind of lack of boundary between the present and the and the past once you're in this space, which the mother Rosalind lived in during the war and where a lot of her memories are kind of focused on. So there's that element of it. Yeah, the, the mad uncanniness of turning up at this country house hotel, which it transpires belonged to their aunt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and they, they sheltered they sheltered children from London in the war and all of that had these has these unhappy things. The look of the film, Clarice, there's some mad I mean, maybe this is a Hitchcockian thing. I'll defer to your, your the pair of yours greater greater knowledge on these matters, but that seemed sort of hit shocking. Some of these mad angles that the, the, there's this staircase that appears to be like a ziggurat at different times. You know, there's lots of playfulness, or there's something very decisive in the way that the film is directed, or that the angles that Holgi is going for, maybe. Yes, and it's also very notable, and I guess intentionally noticeable that. For practical reasons, you never see you never really see mother and daughter in the same shot. I mean, maybe it happens a couple of times, but it's very, well, very one, rare if we it don't does. Want to, no spoilers, but yes. there is obviously that one <laughs> shot. Yeah, the birthday shot. Yes. Yeah, which is and, amazing. Let's not talk about it. I know. I'm trying to withhold. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that feeling of disconnect is so powerful, and that's really. I think, you know, beyond the Hitchcockian sort of inspiration and what she's trying to emulate, I think it's really trying to create, just sever this connection between mother and daughter because it's so, that's what's so painful about it is Mm. that I think both of them want to know each other and there's a conversation that the mother also has with a caretaker at one point, which is, you know, a little judgmental, but I think also bears with it a lot of, sorrow and and uh, a lot of regret of did I make decisions that means that my daughter wasn't as happy as she could have been mm. and so I, I think for me that's that's sort of the overpowering emotion that that feeds into every shot into every decision into why the concierge is so mean <laughs> <laughs> it's this sense of like total alienation but it's it, both sides are trying to bridge the gap and they can't and it's it's I was really moved. I was really mm. crying at the end of this movie because I think that is um, a very relatable thing to see because I think we're used to seeing, I think you're going to talk about it a bit later, we're used to seeing a lot of mother-daughter relationships that are quite, that are so filled with resentment and anger. And I think that's not here. What's here is a desire to see each other and to love each other. And there's something, there's something in the way. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like maybe this is the right time to unpack that idea of the simple inverted commas ghost story, Clarice, because I know that you're going to talk about the ghost stories of Edith Wharton later. That's your kind of extra reading choice. But it's so central to this. And I'm, I'm particularly interested to get your both your take on the femininity of this film, actually. Female filmmaker, female star, tackling the, the, the themes of mother and daughter and unknowability, and frankly, childlessness. The, the eternal daughter is the fact that Julie doesn't and won't have a child of her own, right? So there's something deeply moving about that and about that divide. This feels like something that is often very central to ghost stories, gothic or otherwise, and often written by, often perfected by women. Because they are stories that plough into the subconscious and they're stories that men can't often don't write as well. I want to discuss. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what you made of that. Because that's what I was thinking the whole way through watching this. 
Yes, I agree with the caveat that well, so I was trying to pay very careful attention to the books that Julie's reading over the course, and yeah. she's reading something ghost stories. And so that was a Virago edition, and I bet okay. you that is Edith Wharton's ghost stories. I had thought the green it might spine be. and the apple. Yeah. Yes, and I, as much as I adore the cinematic experience, it's the one thing where you can't pause it and run up well, to the I've, screen. Well, I go. watched. It. <laughs> I, I had I had a screening link rather than watching it at the BFI. So ah. I could pause it, and so she's read. Do, should we discuss the book? Should, should we? Yes, we'll so I want to comment on one of them. Yeah. So let's park about the discussion of the discussion of the Gothic and come back to it. The books that she's reading, via the benefit of the pause button on my laptop, are Tom Chetwin's Dictionary for Dreamers that came out in 1972, and it's a, it's it's all about Jung and Freud, and yeah, so it's that vibe. She reads Kipling's They. From 1984, which is all about only being able to see the ghost of children if you've lost one yourself, which is a really spooky story and beautiful and moving. And that probably Virago edition of probably Edith Wharton's ghost stories. So they're all very much there for a reason. So this is, you have to be eagle-eyed in the, in the cinema to, to catch these things. Yeah, but, yeah, well, there's a close-up of Day, the Rudyard Kipling story. Mm. And I, I kind of wanted to touch on that because... That story was written after the loss of his child. Mm. And a lot of the Edith Wharton ghost stories are about affairs, but with a with a ghostly element to it. And she was writing that while her husband was having an affair. And I think if we consider that, you know, this trilogy, the souvenir part one, part two, and this are all, you know, quite clearly autobiographical, to at least some degree, I don't know, in this one, you know, for obvious reasons, not fully autobiographical. I feel like this might be, and this is, I read Rebecca Mead's brilliant profile of, of Joanna Hogg from 2019, I think it is, recently, to prepare for this. And Hogg and her husband don't and can't have children. I think there is something about that. And there's something that comes from exhibition, you know, the film where this kind of childless middle-aged couple kick about in this lovely house in West London somewhere. There's something of that in it, I think, as well, about the title and the meaning of The Eternal Daughter. Absolutely. And it's so interesting that in all of those examples, it's authors and and filmmakers trying to to find a sense of conclusion to a relationship that is beyond their grasp whether it's someone who's died or someone who can't exist or mm. someone who has just drifted away. Isn't that interesting that they, they're all trying to work through the same emotions yeah. through this gothic structure? And I think that, to me, is is sort of at the day, end of the day what a lot of the gothic ghost story is. It's that gap mm. that you're so desperate to cross and you can't. Yeah, the haunting can be an absence as much as a presence. Absolutely. Right. The ghost is just such a powerful metaphor in so many ways, isn't it? And, I mean, I read that Joanna Hogg also lost her mother while she was editing The Eternal Daughter. So she really wanted her mother, and her mother really wanted to see this film. And it was one that she actually had planned to make for years, um, like pre the first souvenir film, but that she'd only just kind of got around to it after the um, second souvenir film. And so, yeah, it's obviously something that's played on her mind for a long time and clearly has some relationship to her own feelings about her mother and vice versa. So there's something quite sad about that, the fact that her mother never got to see this movie. Yeah, it is. I found it very moving, the whole thing. The performance, Tilda Swinton, let's talk about Swinton's performance in this. 
It's incredible. I don't know what I can say other than that. I, I will. If you're in agreement, Christina, let's talk a bit about that performance. We talked about Joanna Hogg's method of kind of allowing her actors to, to sort of improvise a lot around a sort of story plan. But how do we how do we judge Tilda Swinton, who's in every single scene of this film? I think it's courageous on the part of Hogg and speaks a lot to their long friendship and working relationship to allow an actor that much space as well, because it was Swinton who actually suggested, apparently, that she play both roles. So that hadn't been Joanna's original idea. And yet, as you say, she's she's masterful in it. And, and through, you know, she, she has aging makeup as the mother Rosalind, but it doesn't really... You know, it, it's it's not something that feels like um, a, a gimmick or a gambit mm. in any way. It, it it doesn't distract from the performance. It's much more to do with the cadences of her speech, which feel older. Much more to do with a certain primness in the way that she holds herself and a certain fragility in the way she holds herself as the mother. And the generational difference in their diction. Some, you know, there's something more queenly with capital Q about Rosalind and a little, mm-hmm. something a little bit more contemporary about Rosalind, about uh, Julie, isn't there? Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot in it. There's that scene when they're having one of their awful suppers sort of chucked down in front of them. There's always only salmon or beetroot on the menu for some reason. It's very strange. And that's that's t- somehow a callback to some slightly forgotten Robert Aikman short story in my head as well. There's something about these really uncomfortable, strange, slightly haunted suppers when they come down and they don't know what time it is. And it's like, are we early or late? Because there's no... Uh, are we early or late? It's something very Beckettian, isn't it? There's something simply about waiting about this whole film, perhaps. Yes, I thought of casinos <laughs> where you go in and and you lose all sense of the outside world because you're very fixated mm. on this one thing. Right. It's night or day. Yeah, that's I like, right. I like how we took different things from that. I always have very odd references. <laughs> well, I've so enjoyed talking about uh, The Eternal Daughter with both of you. We're going to do something that is hardly a gear change at all. Clarice, we'll start with you and talk about the ghost stories of Edith Wharton possibly being read by Julie in Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter. So, no prizes for this one, but why, why did this make you think of Edith Wharton's ghost stories? Well, yes, the very obvious you know, visual, tonal character uh, similarities to a lot of her stories, and also because I'm very selfish and I <laughs> love Edith Wharton and I think her ghost stories are magnificent, mm. but I feel like... I just watched a four-part documentary on the Gothic that just premiered on Sky Arts. It was great. They talked about a lot of different authors. She didn't come up, and I felt what? quite slighted by it. Yeah, I felt quite annoyed. So we had Emma James. We had H.P. Lovecraft. We yeah, had Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe. All the people that she looked up all to and admire. I mean, I, I will not. I will say the documentary did have a lot of female authors okay. in it. Right. This is this is not a that sort of anger. This is just me being. Where's my favorite author? Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to, I guess, remind people that her works are out there, and I think that they should be talked about. You know, on the same level as Turn of the Screw and and M. R. James, because I think she. I mean. It's, it's partially that she read all these authors and she was obsessed with ghosts. And, and what I love is that she said, and I really agree with, that she doesn't believe in the supernatural, but she's afraid of it, yeah. which I yeah. think is such a... I feel a, that. I know, and it's such a great <laughs> way to case. approach yeah. ghost stories because yeah. it becomes about less about the, the material existence of it and more the... 
I'm very afraid of my own mind. What's in there? What what might I uncover? Which I think is a, a lot of the Edith Wharton ghost stories. The protagonists are <laughs> coming to very terrible realizations, and all the ghosts are just the messengers knocking on the door, going, "Your husband's having an affair." Mm. By the way, okay, I'll go now, yeah. and then they leave the protagonists to just wallow in that um, misery. It's amazing, and and that's my favorite of her from that original Virago edition of her ghost stories is that story Afterward, which is the one about the mining disaster. And it's the American couple who purposefully move to what they hope is a haunted house in the Kent countryside or something. And it's this grand old pile. And the joke is that it's got a ghost, but they never sort of seem to find it. But they do find it eventually. And it comes from a very unexpected quarter. And it contains that phrase, the hairs are rising on the back of my neck, as I imagine this story, where the house knew. And this goes back to the house being witness, right? And, And this is all throughout Wharton's, who grew up in lots of big, posh, drafty houses, and and I think designed quite a lot of them, didn't they? Her family did. So yeah, the house is sort of ever present in her in her fiction as well. Beautiful. And I think the idea of the sceptical mind, you know, coming into those mm. spaces, be, which very much applies to the eternal daughter, because at the beginning, Julie kind of laughs at the ghost story that the cab driver is telling, and mm. you don't have any feeling that she believes in any of this. Like, that's so much more frightening than someone who believes in ghosts, who just sees a ghost, because it's like, okay, it's more that earth-shattering revelation of, God, I've built my entire perception of the world around this idea of, of you know, science and strict barriers between mm. life and death, and to have that shattered is really quite horrifying, if you think about it. Uh, and I yeah. think there's an element of that in The Eternal Daughter. In There's a particular shot that I think really speaks to that, that made my stomach drop. Like, I think it's so beautifully done. And I think to me, that's the Edith Wharton moment in the movie. Yeah, hoisted by her own sceptical petard, possibly. Yes, very much. I think the dog contributed a little bit. Louis. I was just going to say, with the dog, when the dog goes missing is a really chilling moment as well. You just... That I'm dread so that kicks in the classic the classic horror movie movie moment. Although it's you wouldn't really call it a horror movie, it's still yeah. it's got that, isn't it? Beautiful. The ghost story of Edith Wharton, as discussed by Clarice Lochry. Christina, where are we going with your choice? I guess mine is slightly more lateral in that it isn't really at all a, a ghost story, but uh, it is a story of a mother and a daughter. Uh, it's Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata. Uh, starring the other great Bergman, Ingrid, mm. uh, in her last feature film performance, actually, and Lee Volman as her daughter. And so they haven't seen each other in seven years, this mother and daughter, and the mother comes to visit, and she is a um, very elegant, very famous concert pianist. And her daughter is sort of mousy and has just suffered the loss of a child whom her mother actually has never bothered to meet. So you can imagine the source of these kind of recriminations <laughs> yeah. and yeah. anger and bitterness between yeah. them. But also there's a desperation on the part of Lee Voltman's daughter to please her mother and an incredible, an incredible sequence where she plays piano for her mother. And it's in close-up of Ingrid Bergman's face as she watches and silently judges her daughter's piano playing. Uh, so it's really kind of a wonderful chamber piece, which is... Um, 
so well observed. It's got the kind of parameters of this film as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Hermetically sealed environment. A hermetically sealed environment in which things boil over. And whilst it is a much more fractious relationship than the one we have in The Eternal Daughter, which is, I think, as as Carice said, much more about people trying to meet each other on, on the level they're at, it does feature some really powerhouse performances as well. And you have these two great actresses facing off against each other. And... Um, you know, monologuing mm. at length. Yeah. Monologuing. <laughs> and you also <laughs> it get is a sense, verb. <laughs> you also get the sense that the Lee Volman character is almost sinking into her own mind, her own kind of paranoia and rage at a point in the film where, you know, her her issues with her mother at first seem to make perfect sense. But as she kind of gets on a roll, you begin to get the sense that she's lost what reality is. And so there is a little bit of subtle loss of reality in Autumn Sonata that I think you can track back to the, the eternal daughter as well. There's a yeah a sense of a dislocation or a, a loss of what exists outside, you know, the parameters of this relationship. And the title and that, that atmosphere of things coming to an end, that see, the season of the penultimate season, right? That Autumn Sonata idea is is terrifyingly and movingly put to good use in, in The Eternal Daughter, I guess, as well. Beautiful. That was Autumn Sonata, Ingmar Bergman's great film about mother-daughter relationships. Thank you, Christina. Thank you both. And we should point out that uh, Clarice came in on brand to discuss the Gothic with a shirt featuring dancing skeletons on it. <laughs> I, if only, if only I'd got the memo. <laughs> <laughs> this is a coincidence, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Uh, my thanks to Christina Newland and Clarice Lochry. The Eternal Daughter is out in cinemas now. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coons and Steph Chung-Goo. Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in. 